The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, the podcast where we sit around and talk about movies, get into the nitty-gritty, and really analyze them, and have a lot of fun while doing it. Uh, my name is Sean from FilmJunk.com, and uh, this week, this month, this episode, I am joined by... Kurt Halfyard from Row3.com. <laughs> Jay from uh, Film Junk and the Documentary Blog. And I am Andrew from Row 3. And it's been a while. Uh, this time around, we're talking about uh, Steven Spielberg's AI and John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. And, of course, it's been a couple months. You know, there's always a bit of time in between every episode because it's so damn hard to get all of us coordinating schedules. So, unfortunately, uh, Marina could not be with us. She was hoping to, to be here and... Uh, um, Omar could not be with us, and uh, we were hoping to have Matt Gamble with us, and he couldn't be here, so uh, it's unfortunate, but... Uh, you know, it, with this many people, it I think it just gets to a point where it's like you said it, and whoever can't make it can't make it, unless everyone can't make it, unless there's less than three people. Which actually happened <laughs> several yeah. times up until this, and then it's just like, let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah, so our apologies, but uh, we're here now to talk about two pretty interesting movies, I think. And why don't we kick things off with AI? This being, uh, I believe, the movie that was voted on by listeners way back in, I don't know when that would have been, September? August. August. (laughs) Um, And I believe I was the one who kind of nominated it for, for discussion, so I'll kick off the uh, proceedings here and just say that um, I think it's a pretty it's a movie that has a lot of people divided because I mean I remember when it came out um, there was a lot of controversy over the the Spielberg versus Kubrick thing and whose vision was really on the screen and um, and you know on top of that I think it's got a lot of interesting issues just in the movie itself that can be discussed and I happen to be a fan of the movie. Um, I hadn't rewatched it in a long time, so I actually sat down with it last night, and I still enjoyed it. Uh, the ending, still a bit of an issue for me. I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, overall, I still liked it quite a bit. And um, yeah, that's that's my initial impressions of AI. Kurt, what are your thoughts? Uh, back in was it '99 when this movie came out? I think it was 2000 or maybe 2001. Let me just. Uh, I believe it is 01. 01, yeah. Okay, when this movie came out, um, I can't remember ever leaving the theater more angry at a movie uh, <laughs> coming in. And I, I don't know why. Maybe, like you said, the whole Kubrick-Spielberg thing, I'm past that now. I, I don't even see much or what my issue was with the movie back then. But I was really pissed off uh, about almost everything uh, about the movie, particularly the, the parents 
the first chapter. Yeah. And I didn't even, I didn't have kids at the time, so it wasn't like, cause I'm relating or anything. It just, but anyways, I, I was really annoyed and I, so I watched it again and I was, uh, yeah, just as annoyed, uh, with this movie. It's, it's probably my least favorite Spielberg film, but the problem is there's so much vision on screen. It's just the actual movie doesn't work for me. I mean, it looks great. The movie really looks great, but yeah. it just doesn't uh, work as a movie. And I, I'll go through <laughs> loads of problems that I have with this movie. Okay. Jay? Um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this, but I've seen it a couple of times. Um, I did see it in the theater back in, in uh, 01. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't hate the film, but I, I agree that it has problems and the ending being one of the, the major problems. And uh, I also don't really like the parents, um, but mainly because of the performances. I thought they were, the, the actors weren't very good, but um, I, I don't hate the movie. I'm, I'll, I'll have to kind of decide throughout this discussion which battles I will choose and... <laughs> All right. Andrew? Uh, myself, I will probably come off as quite the fan throughout this discussion. I, I have a feeling I'm going to be defending certain parts of it. Um, having watched it this time was probably my f- maybe fourth or fifth time watching the film in, um, since it came out. I did see it at the theater. I would say that that would probably be the last time I will ever watch it, but... Um, I, I kind of like it. There's a lot of things to like in this movie. As a whole, I think it's just average or maybe slightly better than average. But I, I think I'll fall on, on Sean's side when um, I, I agree that the acting maybe isn't the greatest except for uh, a couple of the robots, um, the, the two leads, actually. Um, I, I like them a lot. I think Jude Law is amazing in this movie. Um, so if we want to break into some nitty-gritty into the movie we can do that but overall uh i I like it i don't love it but i like it and oh and i let's should we just do the ending right first thing we might as well i mean that's certainly the the thing everyone talks about but i mean i've never uh, personally i've never understood the hate for for the end of the movie i i sort of like the imagination of the movie i'm not a big fan of the whole blue fairy thing but i like sort of this version of what the what the future will look like the like the future future way future it's more futuristic than we originally predicted <laughs> <laughs> okay that was a david kelly okay anyway um yeah i know i like the the super aliens that come in and i like thinking way that far into the future and i loved seeing the sort of apocalyptic vision of earth like i think you see the twin towers just sticking up um, over the snow. whoa 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 they were wrong this came out in 2001 right twin towers were in ai i think it, I'm, ai I'm, came out in like january didn't it i'm pretty sure that they're in there a1 <laughs> i9 <laughs> oh so i, I don't know I, I guess a I'd is the first letter here. of the alphabet so <laughs> oh one <laughs> yeah yeah actually the ending the problem i had with the ending from what I remember it, when I first saw it in the theater, first off, I remember when I saw it in the theater that there was a lot of laughter. 
Yeah. And not until the ending. Like the movie played quite well throughout. Were you there? I was there. Um, I remember this. And yeah, there was, and it, it comes from, I think, false endings. And the fact that I think the Blue Fairy and the um, British, they're robots, right? They're not aliens. Yeah, they're alien looking robots. That's confusing too. <laughs> it is. But it's like a, a, a double ending that, you know, you could have lost the Blue Fairy crap and, and just had the British robots. Um, so it kind of, I think, undercuts, one of them undercuts the other for me. And I, I actually thought when I saw it, I remember seeing him in that pod at the bottom of the ocean and the camera slowly starts pulling back. And I thought, wow, is, is it going to end with him at the bottom of the ocean? And of course it didn't. And there was actually probably 20 minutes left after that of yeah. Pinocchio. And it's, it's funny that Spielberg was making minority report while editing AI and Minority Report has exactly the same spot where Tom Cruise is incarcerated in the prison. The 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 sort of you know I, don't, I guess his consciousness is shoved down into the computer or whatever, and it's essentially the ocean mm-hmm. uh, scene. And then of course Minority Report has the same like pull it out of your ass, sentimental, happy ending when you could have ended the more thematically proper ending of of um you know unhappy this close to goal not reaching understanding not making a connection i mean that's what the movie is ai is for the whole movie and then i agree they should have ended it right when you know uh right when he's that close to his goal and then in suspended animation but and i but i can totally say see why they didn't i don't think even stanley kubrick would have ended it there but well and i think from what i heard that this whole thing of the alien things being robots, which of course was kind of confusing in the theater. But, um, I remember having a lot of discussions with people afterwards and that it made a little more sense. And I remember hearing that that was a very key part of what Kubrick wanted to do with the movie is he wanted to show like the evolution of, of humans and how they would be surpassed. They would create robots and then be surpassed by them. And robots would kind of be our legacy in a way. And and I can see that, and that, that's cool, but it, you know, thematically does not... That's not entirely true, because, I mean, all throughout the movie, the humans, uh, particularly the god-awful William Hurt prologue, this sort of, <laughs> like, um, kindergarten debating prologue, but the humans don't seem to be concerned with finding God anymore. They concern, they're more concerned with being God. And the main character, uh, David... Um, the Haley Joe Osmond's character, he's always looking for, you know, his miracle, whether, you know, to get back to his mother or whatever. And then when you find these robots, when they find um, David, he's like their link to the original creators, which are essentially God at that point. Like they're saying, we've, we've kept you and we're going to do whatever you can because you're our essential link to God. You're the link to the, the Hmm. people that built us originally. So it actually thematically it, it might actually work, but in terms of tone, and I mean, that last chapter is like 25 minutes long and it, I don't know, with the Ben Kingsley doing the voice and, and it's so syrupy and sentimental, it doesn't mesh with the tone well, of the movie ever. The other thing that really, really 
bugged me and and it doesn't even really make a lot of sense is the whole thing of he has one day to spend with uh with his mother be- and, and they give some weird scientific explanation of like the space time the, p- the space time continuum or the path in space time can only be traveled once and you can't bring that person back to life through dna again because they'll only live for one day and then die and it just seems so random and like overly complicated everything about this movie the 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 prologue like i said before it, it um there's loads of explanation that goes on i mean even when the mom says just a throwaway line when she's abandoning him in the forest stay away from flush fairs like it just seems only there to set up something else like the the, the problem with this movie is all the exposition that's thrown out i think this movie would work far better without the prologue without the Ben Kingsley voiceover, um, without the explanations for anything. If everything was just played as this is happening, um, figure it out. I think the movie would, I think the themes and, and, and the ideas would resonate a lot better than if you have characters constantly telling you. Cause even when I'm saying with Ben Kingsley as the alien with the robot, sorry, at the end saying he, he exactly spells out everything in his, dialogue and then yes all the needless explanation explanation about different things your your filmmaking you don't need to tell everything you you show and i find ai spends far too much time telling and it, it just undermines it as a hard as a hard piece of science fiction which i think is what the movie wants to be as much as anything else it, it just undermines it yeah and i think um you know there's narration at the beginning and narration at the end and you know a lot of people always argue that narration in a movie is a, a bad sign, and I think this is one example that kind of proves it. Um, but, um, Andrew, did you have more to say about the ending, or no? Um, no, not not really. I, I agree that the weird, the weird only works for one day thing is just kind of just sort of a random plot element that they just threw in there, but I, I don't mind the sentimentality of it. I don't mind the I, I thought it was pretty clear that they were our future robots, the people that we, the the robots that we've made. So I, I didn't have much else to. I just didn't. I don't. I never understood the hate. So I kind of get where you guys are coming from, but it doesn't bother me. Well, it's the weird mix of the movie. It, it, I mean, it's actually when they go to see um, Doctor No, or basically the sort of hyperactive Robin Williams version of the internet. Um, they end that scene with the combined fact with fairy tale and that's the movie right like i mean half of it is pinocchio um and or wizard of oz even and then half of it is trying to be solaris <laughs> and i think on paper that works really well and maybe the brian aldis or whatever the short story that was original which i've not read uh, was based on it might work really well but on screen it it just does not ever gel and every scene in the movie from the prologue to going to david from david going to jude law catching back up to the flesh fair scene it's just here's a scene and then boom we'll go on to the next scene they don't really glue together when i was watching it this time i'm like you know what if they did like a like a lars von trier type inner titles and divided it into chapters it might actually some small thing like that might actually improve 
the movie. It would probably ease with the voiceover narration because you could put it on every chapter. But I mean, like they leave the flesh fair and then like literally they just walk out the turnstiles and scene and, and then that it's gone. And every, and then like the, when the aliens come in at the end, it's the same abrupt transition. Yeah, I, I, I totally see what you're saying. I mean, and it, that struck me as well, rewatching this, that there's very distinct acts and they're so loosely connected, but there's a couple things that kind of drive it forward. I mean, one thing that I kind of liked that was, that was I thought was a cool touch was the whole it opens with the 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 blurry image of like the Rockefeller uh statue or whatever right and then you don't really know what it is at the beginning and then there's you know he's drawing the picture of what he saw when he was first created and then later you find out what it is and I mean that that's kind of a cool uh thing that kind of leads you through the movie and I I like that um and, you know, to be honest, I didn't have a problem with the whole uh, Blue Fairy thing either. I mean, that I, I see that this was trying to be sort of a fairy tale, and, and I think it worked in that, in that way. Like, I, I like the idea of the Dr. No, where it's like Jude Law says, we have to go talk to Dr. No, and you're thinking, this is a real person. And in the robots, the way the robot is kind of processing it, maybe it is, but then you get there and you realize that it's just like a information kiosk yeah so I, I like that the way that it's like these robots are like little kids kind of going through this world piecing things together and the way they see the world is as a fairy tale but we see that it's not you know and i kind of i thought that was really cool well weren't the parents kind of living this really flat fairy tale as well i found their house and their neighborhood and how they lived their lives was so hermetically sealed like the dad in particular um rarely do i have issues with characters being exceedingly dumb on screen but the dad character comes across as so unintelligent every decision he makes is way overblown um i mean even the bringing the robot home uh is is so misguided he doesn't actually ever talk to his wife and i'm not saying that that's not necessarily realistic i'm just the way they communicate and what he does and how they broach things everything is so abrupt and they learn like they're worse than the david character they're so out of tune with reality i'm like this guy's supposed to be an executive at a at a cybernetics or i don't know if he's an executive he's an employee at at william hertz company right because they they have the scene where they're they're only doing this internal test with with employees and they're like well we've got the right candidate he he he's loyal he 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 lost his own son or his own sons in hybrid freezing but i i mean i don't know the guy just seems really idiotic and every decision they make as a couple i don't know it maybe the movie's just so much in a hurry to get all of it's information in that it's like, well, we got to have the scene where they bring the robot. Then we have to have the scene where they, um, uh, you know, adjust with the robot. Then they have the scene where the kids come over and tease the robot. There's no, nothing flows. It's just like, boom, we got to make this point. It's like they're connecting the dots with no grace. They're just stumbling from plot point to plot point. Well, I remember being surprised that when their other son comes home, 
and you see him with David and there's a few scenes of them together and you, you know, you get the sense that obviously they're, things are not going to go well between them. But then all of a sudden she's like, you know, he's only been home for like two weeks or, or something. And you're like, what, this has only been two weeks. And this is like, they're already like at each other's throats and he's already like hating David and like trying to kill off David. <laughs> like even just... the way, even the way he talks, like the kids like, well, are you the latest version of the robot or my other versions obsolete? It's like, I mean, the kid, I, I guess, you know, coming out of hype, uh, hype, whatever the, the freezing, the, uh, you know, it would be, instantaneous for him but you know uh, you wouldn't be interested in what's happening and and whatever it's like boom you're you're i don't know i I found that kid wow the way he was written was just badly written and wouldn't the parents pay attention like to the sibling rivalry it's so bluntly obvious yeah i see what you're saying a little bit like structurally and and maybe it's sort of clunky where it goes just from boom 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 talking point to talking point but the the situations i think and psychology of the parents and the kid and everything i think you're with all due respect i think you're just way off base like i think ouch uh, to me, it, rings, <laughs> it rings so true and believable to me i think the parents with their kid in carbon freeze are a little bit out of their head i'm sure that they're uh, they've got some psychological trauma going on. So the father bringing home this boy and then the mother deciding to activate the, the robot and everything, I think all that is just impulsive and their just need to grasp onto something, um, maybe to get over their grief or because the doctors have told them their kid is probably not ever coming back. Um, so I, I don't know. I think the, all their decision-making, while it's probably stupid, maybe – or or nonsensical or or whatever i think it's believable for the situation that they're in and as for the as for the brother the kid that comes home try to put yourself into like a 10 year old's shoes and you you come home and all of a sudden you have a new brother who's your age except for he's a robot i would totally fuck with him (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I would do is I would test him and push him and I would test my parents with him a little bit. Um, I mean, I, shit, I did that with my sister even. So I can totally see somebody, the, the boy treating the, the robot this way and all his friends come over and they're – they're fascinated. By yeah, but it okay, like it's a, you it's you a have poster. you okay. Let's do the birthday party thing. You 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 have all these kids coming over. It's for his birthday party. I mean, they're right by a swimming pool. Uh, you'd think there'd be at least one parent looking when um, they all all the kids all of a sudden gather, and then one of the kid goes over to the thing and gets a friggin' carving knife. Like it's not like he he pulls out a little tiny knife. He pulls out like the, the like a. A chef's knife, uh, and 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 that scene just goes on for for a couple minutes before no one ever sees what happens, even though it's all right in front of them. I mean, the same thing. The parents were already keyed up to the sibling rivalry from the spinach eating contest that they have, and. You know, when you have a birthday party and you get a bunch of kids there, and and no one's paying attention, and and no one actually thinks about the situation. I understand that from the movie's point of view, the movie really wants you to empathize with with David, and 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 it gives you from his point of view. But I mean, they've invested a certain amount of time in this surrogate child, and 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 they're 
as a parent, I imagine if, if, if I had that opportunity to bring a robot child in the thing, that would be my focus. And since the mom is like a stay at home mom, uh, you'd think she would like pay attention at a birthday party when all of a sudden there's a whole crowd of kids come into this thing. And the, the, the plot wants that scene to happen. And, and it just ignores yet the tone of the movie is trying to be as realistic as possible. The future, like, like minority report is a near future where everything looks realistic. And I just can't get around the bad parenting. I couldn't get around it when I wasn't a parent. Now that I am a parent, I really can't get around it. I mean, it, it's just the, the human beings in the movie are, are constructs and not in a good way. Like, you know, Kier Duella was in, in, in 2001 uh, and the movie is a contract the, the parents are a construct only because the plot has to get to the next chapter. And I find it sad. And maybe that's the darkest element of the movie is that the kid desperately wants his mother who is a, you know, latte sipping suv driving fucking robot herself he wants her love and she's i don't know comes across as a totally despicable human being in this movie um barely even a human being and that's probably the darkest element for me in the movie that that's his goal is to have this 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 woman's love who i think is like undeserving and and her son is a is a monster like beyond how he treats his brother he's a monster um He's, yeah, he's not even as, at least the, you know, if you watch the ice storm, which we did on a previous episode, the one child that was a bit disturbed, that's always, you know, putting M80s onto his toys and blowing up. You can understand why that, why he's like that, or you can empathize or sympathize with the confusion of that character. Whereas the kid in this is just a monster there to fuck with David and so that the story can move on. I, that's my problem with the movie is that nothing flows. It's just all planted in front of the camera to say big wavy plot point we're making we're telling you what this movie's about in in big pointy arrows and flashing signs that's i guess the bluntness of the movie is is its biggest problem fair enough fair enough but i think you're right when you said that the movie is really trying to get you on board with uh, david's point of view so so yeah i I agree with everything you said there except for that it's you're i guess I don't know. It just doesn't bother me. Uh, you want to feel the way David feels. Um, when that kid pulls out the carving knife, you're not really supposed to be thinking about, why aren't the parents paying attention? You're supposed to be thinking about, wow, how is this affecting David's computer psychology? Because it's his story. It's his emotion uh, that you're supposed to be getting involved with. And that's the part I focused on, I guess. But I, I mean, I could see where, where you're coming from. And once something bugs you, it's just going to continue to bug you probably. Well, I think it's, you know, it's something that happens in a lot of science fiction movies, science fiction stories. And sometimes you're willing to forgive it and sometimes you aren't, right? Like that's that's kind of how it works. Like they, you, you don't always expect, you know, super realistic characters in a science fiction movie. And I, I I see what you're saying and I see the flaws, but uh, I'm I'm with Andrew in that they didn't really bother me that much. Like to me, if the point is that these these other humans are you know evil and horrible, and David is the most human out of all of them, then then that's that's an interesting uh, angle. I think. I mean, it's something that's played up in 
in Astro Boy and Pinocchio and, and all kinds of these, these similar stories. And, um, yeah, it's exaggerated, but, uh, well, actually, uh, in Pinocchio, it's, it's inverted. I mean, maybe the Disney Pinocchio, but the, the real Pinocchio, um, I mean, Pinocchio is a monster, which is, which I found one of the more interesting, at least from a using other culture to tell the story in AI is that they, they may more or less make David a saint, um, which I'm fine with. I, I have no problem with that. Well, they even have um, the, the shot where he's at the table and it's from above and he's got that light fixture and he's basically got a halo above his head. There's a lot of shots like that in the movie where he's framed in unusual He's wearing ways. white and he's like a white that, light behind him. And I think that is Spielberg trying to be Kubrick, to be perfectly honest. Really? I mean, maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe that halo thing is is saying something metaphorically. But well, they, they also feeling. have... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I just got the feeling that it was Spielberg trying to have sort of a Kubrick look to his movie, whatever that is. Uh, that is particularly that shot over the, uh, over the or th- through the ring of that light. I just was like, oh, wow, that's, that's totally a shot Kubrick would have in like Clockwork Orange or something. Well, they have a shot earlier where his mother is looking at him the first time when he's getting ready for bed and it's through the sort of waves of glass so you have like 30 of him right looking out which will be later echoed in the movie when he um finds right all the assembly line versions of himself which i found that scene to be also really offensive not not that that hasn't been done before like when we had the aliens for conversation or whatever on the one podcast where Sigourney Weaver finds her previous failed clones or whatever. Uh, but it just makes no sense. This is another, there's just, this is the problem. The logic, the plot holes in this movie are, are terrible. Um, when he finds his way all the way back to uh, professor hobby that decides to do his scientific test or his whatever prototype test by just dumping the thing in and, and letting it sink or swim with this family. Okay, I can maybe get on board with that. But when he finally gets back, he's like, I'm going to go get the team and, and we're all going to find out all your stories. And he just leaves him there with all of these other robots or whatever. It just seems like a totally dunce thing to do. And so he leaves and then, of course, they never look for him. So he, you know, he he commits suicide by falling in the, uh, you know, jumping off the side of the building. He goes down. They they take Jude Law away, and and he ends up going down in the in the the submersible uh, to look for the blue fairy. But I mean, if they were so interested in his brain and how this f- was the first robot through technology that could actually, you know, do all form the right you know neuron pathways to. to to, to, to find love and be needy and dream wouldn't they want him back to look at him like i mean i can i am all for forgiving plot holes if the movie is is, is working but some of the, the the ones in here are just beyond baffling well and i think that's another reason why they could have they should have ended the movie with him underwater because then it could have gone on and said what happens next but you know obviously they don't find him so <laughs> um jay did you have something to say earlier did I? I don't know. I thought you were going to jump in on the whole parenting uh, conversation, but... Oh, I think I was going to say that I totally forgot that there was a spinach eating contest. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good moment, though. Um, I don't know. With the kid, the way the kid treats the robot, 
isn't it supposed to be kind of like he looks at him like a toy? Like, I, I think the way he's treating the robot is just because he has no respect for the idea of a robot being a, being so close to a human that he treats it like he would right. any other right, toy. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's how the boys treat him as well. Yeah. And I'm not saying that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying my issue is not with how the boys treat the robot. That's totally uh, believable. It's how all the parents, like the role models, I guess, or the, 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 the authority figures are so hands off. Um, I mean, if it's the logical near future progression and the way parenting right now is so micromanaging the helicopter parent, you know, where you're just hovering over your child, it just, and then of course this kid was deathly ill for many years and they just got him back and it's his birthday. It just seems crazy to allow even access, you know, you know, I can buy that, you know, you're busy or whatever. It just seems crazy to allow that other than that the plot says so i i can see that a little bit but i can also see just just you know the need to have the moment where the kid like like that conflict between the kid and david and trying to work your way around the idea of the parents always being on their backs might be cumbersome in just a, a storytelling sense so it, it just might be maybe it's lazy but it might even be um out of laziness just a, a a way to avoid a cumbersome method of harassment between the brother or the son and david to the point where they have to weave their way through by slowly making this happen over time because the mom is always there or, or whatever like maybe it's just a, a, a way to be get to the point a little quicker so that the story can can push forward without having to to navigate reality over just this is what happens you know what i mean but the sort of big theme they set up in in the uh, william hurt science speech at the beginning is that um yeah it might be possible to make a robot that can love but will people love it back which is a really good question and a, an interesting idea to base a movie around but Basically, they abandon that when they bring Jude Law in. That that it just disappears. That um, that plot, and I mean, even the ending where he has the day with his mom. It, there's nothing that goes back and actually, you know, asks interesting questions. It seems to be like I mean, it's your opening speech in a movie. You don't accidentally put that in there, but it's like they they just sort of but but gave up on it. Isn't the Jude Law robot? I mean, the idea of, of love and everything and the fact that he's a gigolo, something to be said about the idea of, of loving something and, and using something and something being a, a replacement for a loved one or... Yeah, it's like, there. He, and, he's, and I agree with that. His, but. I don't think it, that theme is totally abandoned because he's kind of a walking metaphor for that whole theme, don't you think? Yeah, but they don't do anything with it. I mean, they, Jude Law is well, just he, basically a, is, There's a scene he there, has There are with, some conversations. Like, there's one where um, she, I, I, they're talking back and forth, and I remember there's this, Jude Law says, oh, she, she doesn't love you. She just loves the idea of... Uh, Temporary replacement. Yeah, something like that. And, um, and, and so he's trying to relate his experiences to David's experiences. And, 
and that's interesting. I but I think that's an interesting pairing. I mean, that's that's what I like about the movie is the um, the Wizard of Oz element, like the all the time spent in the the city and in at the flesh fair and and just the I think the silhouette of Jude Law's Gigolo, David and the Bear are are like a could have potentially have been like as interesting or classic a silhouette as the lion tin man oh they're, they're definitely going for that the whole flesh fair element is the oz mm-hmm. um one doctor knows moment the in the movie absolutely but yeah I, I like that and i but yeah i mean i agree with uh, other than just for the sake of debate bring up these other things but i agree with you that the the beginning and the ending I, I think those are the problem. But I, I mean, not so much that it totally ruined the movie for me. I can I can look past the beginning. I, I wish it was a little shorter, but it seems like the family in the beginning, Spielberg can really do families well, but sometimes it's like he has this backup family that is this generic family that he always brings out for these small parts, like uh, even as small as... Uh, Lost World, where at the end, the last half hour, the dinosaur is roaming and and it ends up in the backyard of one family. And you see that typical Spielbergian family that have no real personality, but you can, they have that Spielberg stand in for slightly upper, upper middle class. Or like his amazing stories episode with the train that goes through the house, that family, um, that's what the AI family felt like. It felt like a, a second rate Spielberg, uh, stand in family for a, a kind of a small aspect of a film. Um, not totally f- as fleshed out as like the family in ET or whatever, or jaws. But, um, yeah, I, I, the middle of the film, I works for me. I, I like the adventure, uh, element of it. Uh, the, the themes and, and whatnot, I, are a little, I think, um, broad and maybe a little too on the head at times. And, um, but I, I like, I like it in terms of an adventure film, but yeah, I mean, you have to really cut a lot off of it to have it go beyond, uh, you know, a, a pretty good film to something that's great and there's potential there. And that, that's the annoying thing. I think I the think. movie that, then that's why I hate the movie so much. Cause it really is throwing the gauntlet down and saying, you know what, we're trying to make, a 2001. We're trying to make one of the big sci-fi films, one of the big, great sci-fi films. And it just, ambition's there, absolutely, whether you want to attribute it to Kubrick or Spielberg or, 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 or whatever, but it just never achieves it. And the Flesh Fair is a good example, another good example I think we should talk about, um, the sort of Tron meets the Road Warrior aesthetic, which... I thought was a bit clumsy. I mean, I guess the movie keeps changing its look so I can buy that to a degree. But again, I come back to the movies in a hurry to get to the next thing. Um, when they bring the boy up, like, so they destroy Chris Rock and a few other people, uh, you know, in, as just sort of like a WWF circus spectacle, um, complete with the ringleader and everything. But then all of a sudden they bring the boy up and the crowd turns, completely on an instant and i just i don't know if i buy the whole it's a movie cliche and and it's it's a painful one like the crowd just immediately turns and then there's a riot and 
the the two main characters just leave the riot. Like that whole scene plays out like clumsy. It's just the whole scene. It's like in um, Escape from L.A. where everyone starts chanting for Snake when he makes the final shot. <laughs> but and Escape then, from L.A. is designed to be goofy, whereas this and then thing it's is like not. Strange Brew, where Do- Bob and Doug let the moths out and the riot starts, and then they sneak out the back door. So if, if you like Strange Brew and Escape from L.A., you'll love the flesh fair scene and AI. But uh, well, I think I think uh, just to get back to the point you were making before, Kurt, about how you know it's an ambitious movie and it's like they want it to be this like classic sci-fi film, and I see that and I agree and I agree that they well I mean time has kind of proved they didn't really hit the mark because I mean eight years later not a lot of people are really talking about AI anymore, you know, and it hasn't even been that long, but, um, it's already kind of faded. And I don't know if it's just the ending. Cause I mean, anytime you bring the movie up, it seems like people just zone in on that right away. And they're like, hate AI cause the ending or something. But I still think there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And I, I definitely agree that the, the sections are not really melded together as well as they should be. But, uh, you know, it's like, I, I on the one hand, I want to say I'd love to see a whole movie of just David and the family, like, more, just more well done and more fleshed out. And what kind of movie that would have been, that could be interesting. But then I'd have to give up all the, the action and adventure stuff that was in there. And I kind of like that, too. So Trilogy. This, this yeah. movie reminds me of a Pixar film, but not animated. Yeah, that's a like, good point. It's, it's like a, if, if this movie was animated as is um i would feel like it it probably would the the first half hour or whatever would feel like it has more weight to it and more uh you know wow this is pretty deep for an animated film and and i i don't know i i think maybe it could have worked better in that it's because the movie shot with this sort of tactile reality um, and that you always feel like the future in this movie feels like you're, um, it's a real future. That's what kills it. If it was a fantasy, a big allegorical, even animated, whatever sci-fi fantasy, like, you know, if it was like a boy and his dog, then, you know, I could buy it because it, it's not designed to look real. I, I think Minority Report works actually a lot better and it requires you swallow a lot more alien concepts, but it, it works. I don't know. That movie seems to gel a heck of a lot better in hindsight. Um, because AI grafts the fairy tale onto the reality. And, um, I mean, in this case, the magical realism doesn't, doesn't quite work. Uh, I mean, the, the things I do love about the movie, uh, in, in here's and there's is, uh, there's some great, Imagery. I mean, the cinematography, the overall production design of the movie, the Rouge City production design is, is, is stellar. I mean, there's a shot late in the movie where you're like a Sergio Leone level close up on Haley, Haley Joel Osmond. H.J. Osmond. Um, <laughs> and it's so overly lit that it's just white. And then he opens his eyes and you get this perfectly blue eyes on the field and there's another scene later when jude law is looking at um haley joe committing suicide and it's framed that the um the 
boy robot falling in his face is a tear that runs down his face. I mean, there's the ambitious images, and there's many of them uh, in the movie, uh, and they work as, you know, one-minute bits, but yeah, I, I just can't... The whole thing just remains uncohesive, too uncohesive for me to, to take. And I, and I still, when I watch it, I... I just sort of facepalm when I watch it. I just can't get over that. I, I, I Yeah. Well, uh, something that I wanted to bring up, just so I can bring up the most pretentious and nerdiest thing possible, um, something that I actually like about this movie that I thought was kind of cool is all the water imagery in this movie. And, like, I don't know, you always hear that, like, water symbolizes rebirth and all this kind of stuff, but it opens with, like, this huge shot of, like, the ocean and then there's there's this key scene where in the pool where he you know is abandoned in the pool and then of course the end of the movie well where it should have ended i guess um and i just i like those those moments those key moments and how they you know grounded it in that that imagery and that theme i, I thought that was pretty cool too like there's a lot of things well, going even on even jude this. law does his sort of um uh singing in the rain dance like he's walking on water at so, twice in the movie where, where he's yeah. dancing on water. So, I mean, there's, there's things going on in this movie. Like it's not, it's not like it wasn't thought out and it's not like there's not a lot of interesting stuff here. It's just, you know, yeah, maybe it's not, uh, pieced together the way it should have been. It's, it's hard to say, like, uh, just to get back to the whole Kubrick Spielberg thing. I haven't read too much on it, but do you guys know anything about like what Kubrick's original vision was? Like, I heard that he it would he wanted it to be darker and he wanted it to be rated R and things like this. But it's, it's the other way around, actually. I mean the the teddy bear and the um, uh, and the ending are Kubrick, and the flesh fair and the um, uh, abandonment or whatever is. Spielberg so uh, it's hmm. weird I mean Spielberg made a big case because that's when this movie came out I mean that was the whole conversation was dueling opposite auteurs and Kubrick was gone and you know was was Spielberg making the movie as a tribute rather than making the right movie and there was all these questions going around and I think Spielberg was quite defensive that almost like pleading like no the darkness was me i was the dark <laughs> vision kubrick wanted everything rainbows and lollipops uh well he brought spielberg on because he didn't think he could handle a lot of the the lighter stuff uh, people seem to talk about it as though spielberg ripped this from kubrick's dead hands and <laughs> and pissed all over it or something when they had been collaborating on it previous to this and Kubrick specifically seeked out Spielberg to handle all of these elements that he thought he was too cold and calculated to deal with. Really? I, to be perfectly honest, I would not want to see the Kubrick version of this movie. I, I, I think Spielberg actually smoothens a lot of the edge. He doesn't quite make it work together, but the Kubrick version of this would probably be completely insufferable. Like, I, I can't. <laughs> I, no, it would probably even be like an hour longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't imagine, and I, and I'm a you know huge Kubrick fan. I um, I just don't think I don't even think I want to see the, the the Kubrick version of this if it ever came to be. I know the images of the drowned city though was the original like 
in the 70s, because this movie was in development since the 70s, uh, those images of the drowned city were the primary uh, concept art from the beginning. Hmm, that's cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else you guys, uh, any other thoughts on AI? I'm kind of... Well, the only the only other thing I had was I already mentioned that I really like Jude Law's performance, but uh, this was the end of Haley Joel Osment's career, for better or worse. I mean, he's in some video game stuff, and he was in that other secondhand Lions or whatever. But this was basically his last movie. And Pay It Forward which, was that before this? Yeah, no, you're yeah. right. That might have been after this too. <laughs> that was the career killer. Yeah, I think right that there. was it. Because <laughs> he. I don't know what you guys think, but I, I thought he was really good in this. Um, for one thing, he never blinks. I remember that was like a big deal at the time it was released. He never blinks once in the entire movie, which is kind of interesting. But I just I thought he was really believable. I, the, the scene, maybe it's a little melodramatic, but where the mom drops him off into the forest, and uh, that was the moment where I was like, oh, this robot really... Either he really does love her or he's programmed to act like he does really well. And there were a couple other scenes like that where I really felt, I don't know how to put my finger on it exactly, but robot love. I, guess. <laughs> I, I, I just thought he was great in it, and so was Jude Law. So I, the two main characters that were robots I thought were just fascinating to watch on screen. I mean, he was creepy. At times, oh, really yeah. creepy at times. Um, and other times, he was very cute, and you wanted to root for him, but I just think he did what he needed to do just spot on for, for the role. I think it was a conscious decision over the course of the movie. He comes in the most robot-like, and as the movie progresses, it's like, well, you don't need the Blue Fairy. You don't need any interface. By the end of the movie, he's as needy and selfish and whatever as a as a real boy i mean like he basically takes that day with his mother as a pure indulgence to himself um like there's nothing to be gained other than his own indulgence he even knows it's transient but he he even short term thinks on it like so it actually does show a perfect progression of him from the stilted you know, awkward compliments like I like your floor, which I think is his first line of dialogue <laughs> in the movie. Um, and the stilted looks and the, 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 you know, overly robotic. And then as the movie progresses, he just gradually becomes like a human being. And by the time he's talking to the, the, the robots at the end, he, he, he might as well be a human being. Um, so that yeah it's a good performance I, I agree with that yeah i thought he was good and i mean um i certainly like the the early stuff forgot how creepy he was in the movie like there's there's that one shot that i love where he's like she's making coffee or whatever and it's like just his eyes above the table but it's kind of on an angle and he just looks so freaky like and i mean it's probably it's not even anything to do with his performance there really it's just the shot oh, you're but, right and there's a scene where she's like walking around and then she comes around a corner and all of a sudden he's just standing there. Yeah. Just sort of looking at her with those big eyes and he's uh, yeah, there was a lot there was at least three or four shots in there that I kind of I wouldn't say I got goosebumps, but definitely were gave that vibe of just creepiness. And IMDb says that Pay It Forward was 2000. So this was after Pay It Forward. Oh, well there you go. 
Um, I, I thought the the knockout performance of the movie uh, though was the was the guy from Entourage as horny teenager number one. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was hilarious, oh, right. especially since yeah. it's like he hasn't changed; like his roles are still the same. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, the other thing, though, uh, on the topic of uh, Haley Joel Osment is, I kind of remember when this movie came out, there was like Oscar buzz; like people thought he was going to get nominated, and then I guess he didn't, right? I don't know. It's a. I mean, it's a. It's the type of performance that wins Oscars. Hmm. Yeah, but what happened to his career? I don't know. I. I think he had oh. the DUI. Yeah. Well, that he was, was a child. Child star actor. All. All of them. Well, that's up. it. He was a kid who played kid roles really well, and then as soon as he was a teenager, nobody wanted him anymore. They wanted him as the cute kid. Yeah. And he just wasn't. He isn't. He doesn't have the face and the acting chops, apparently, for what people are looking for. Like that secondhand lions movie. I never saw it, but I just have a feeling like uh, he doesn't look like the kind of person Hollywood wants for that role. But I don't, what do I know? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. One weird thing that uh, crossed my mind too uh, at the beginning, towards the beginning of this movie. The whole idea that they're making these kid robots, isn't that kind of weird? Because what happens when, like, you grow up and, and the kid doesn't ever age? Like, isn't that a weird thing for a parent to be like, yeah, I want a kid robot that's never going to get old, and I'm just going to have a kid forever? Well, it ties into what Jay was saying earlier, that, uh, you know, despite the scientific ambitions of Professor Hobby, which are not really articulated well in the movie... Uh, he, the, the robots are all seen as fulfilling a niche. You know, you, you use the robot for a while and you throw it away. Even with this special programming and 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 loving, I, I think that the that peop, the the designers never got their own uh, idea of okay, uh, you have this robot that loves its owner or or, or what a parent, and uh, supposedly the parents get something out of it um but i don't think and that's what the woman brings up at the beginning uh the the black woman in in the in the debate of yeah but are you going to get the people to love them back yeah i mean it seems to be more just about you know when the the it's almost like the uncanny valley in in cg where um it's this replacement toy that because technology just keeps progressing it becomes too real and it's just a now it's problematic because you feel guilt throwing it out well and i i think you know as as kind of fantastical and sci-fi as that idea is it could be something that we have to face in our lifetime like i i believe that we could we could have ai that's you know, close to being this advanced where we have to think, well, okay, now how, how do we have a responsibility to this? Like, I don't know. And, um, that's one of the other things I really liked about this movie. Like in terms of movies about robots that actually, you know, address sort of deeper issues. Like there's not a ton out there that that do it. Kicks the crap out of the iRobot movie. Uh, (laughs) when the source material for that is, that's the whole core subject of, of that. And and I, I mean, AI was very profitable. I mean, it made a lot of money and, uh, people saw it and I, you know, I, I don't think it was one of these flash in the pan 
blockbusters, so people were going to see it. Uh, I don't know why no one else has made that type of movie afterwards because it obviously you know like you said it was a failed project someone could just take it and take it to the you know refine it and 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 take it to the next place i guess bicentennial man was that after (laughs) that (laughs) another uh isaac asimov story destroyed um but i mean seriously there aren't a ton of like i mean blade runner i guess deals with some of these issues right um, well, they they were definitely in this movie. There were huge elements where they were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah just use Blade Runner's production design. I, I found <laughs> there was a production design element uh, of Blade Runner in this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think probably the best uh, show to deal with this would be Little Wonder. That's a good point. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, Cyborg. No. Um, or Daryl. <laughs> yes. Um, short Circuit, actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the uh, Short Circuit would be the only robot movie more maudlin <laughs> than AI, particularly the no, final moments of short AI. Short Circuit 2 would be. <laughs> yes, there was no blatantly racist caricature like the Fisher Stevens <laughs> uh, character in Short Circuit. Well, do you remember the poster for Short, for Short Circuit 2? I'm sure it wasn't the only poster, but it's the robot on like a, one of those inflatable bed things in a pool, like holding a drink. Really? <laughs> All I can picture is like... Aim high, Hollywood. Aim high. All I can hey, picture I is... Short uh, Circuit movies. Oh, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're good. But all I can picture is Johnny Five with the cowboy hat or something. Like, was that on... Was that the first one? Well, actually, WALL-E is, is a good example uh, of, of the uh, the sentient um, robots. I mean, the, the, the principal relationship in that movie, and it works very, very well. I mean... Uh, yeah, That's yeah, always true. something that irks me about... I, I, I'm never manipulated by... Um, by movies with robots that you're supposed to care about. Like if I, if I had a, if I had a robot, I could definitely appreciate it and use it and even become buddies with it. But when it comes to love or like people getting really upset about it, getting its arm cut off or something like that, I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, no, it's a fucking toaster. It's a bunch of wires. It's no different than taking out a disk drive on your computer. It, it's not hurting it. It's not. It doesn't have any feeling. I, I'm never manipulated by that. Where I, I find that a lot of people, which I guess could tie into this film, uh, I, I think a lot of people would be that they see that human face and that human figure, and they genuinely, genuinely have sympathy and compassion for it, even though. It's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of pieces of metal, no different than a blender, <laughs> except more advanced, just you know, more to it, more intricate. So I well, I think that's whole, how I think that's how the teddy bear character was treated in AI. Yet I found that character to be fascinating. I, I mean, one that the movie makers totally realized that character. It, it didn't feel like like a like a toy, like a prop. Uh, I mean, it, it actually, I, maybe it was the, the choice of the voice actor who, who just was perfect uh, for that thing. But the, he's treated more like what you're saying now. He was purely a disposable toy. and uh, um, I, want, I want one of those, by the way. And uh, they did sell them shortly after the movie. 
not obviously <laughs> as good like, as that one, but like that. <laughs> but uh, um, well, I remember like even this maybe is kind of going off the tracks a little bit, but I remember even in junior high, right or high school, if some of the girls took the home ec class where they had to bring home that baby that was totally realistic and you had to burp it and it had sensors in it and you're sp- shit. All I wanted to do was like see how much I could torment the thing. And maybe that's a symptom of my illness or whatever. It really wasn't a home ec class. It was a psychology experiment you were not aware of. You were, you failed. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, of course, I would never even, wouldn't even enter my mind to do something like that to a real baby, of course. But when you've got this, this it's a robot. I just want to fuck with it and see what it'll do and see how it responds to certain things. Like, Which is why you had no issue with the brother character mm-hmm. in the movie. But I mean, when you get to a when you get to a certain point, like you create something that is conscious and has feelings, and even if it's artificial feelings, and and something is aware and able to you know express emotion and and uh, store memory and and everything, what is different than uh, how how is that different than what we are, um, especially coming from. Uh, a perspective where one might not believe in a soul, but rather just a, a series of electrical impulses that create something that resembles uh, a soul, I guess, in the minds of others. And the only difference is one is made of metal and one is is made of flesh. So it, it, it's I, I would think a robot, um, if there were ten robots that could that could express that kind of emotion and, and feelings and consciousness. They would be more precious than the billions and billions and billions of humans that exist on Earth, and or at least on an equal level, because it's it's all the same thing. It's just all a being that can feel and and express emotion and be conscious. And, and on that note, AI is probably one of the most purely atheist films that I that I can think of. I mean, if there is issues of god all of the god figures in the movie are displaced onto the human people whether it's him treating his mother like god or um the robots of the future treating people like professor hobby like god uh yet the humans are never ever concerned um i mean with the, with the amount of things that the movie juggles i mean you'd think that they would have something like that in the air as well but the human beings are never interested in religion there's no religion spirituality element in other than the machines that are questing for it and the machine all the machines point back to the people so i mean an ai is essentially a like a, a big tribute to atheism i guess well i mean that's the only thing that would separate a robot at that level and a human being is the perception of one came from a god and one didn't one came from a human so I mean, on that level, I, I can uh, see how one could. Well, I mean, the the reason people relate to robots in movies is because they look like humans. by people. Yes, <laughs> um, but you can you can make people identify with you know just about anything. Well, look at the IKEA screen. lamp commercial. Exactly. Volleyball, volleyball. Yeah. But well, now that we've broached the subject of religion, maybe we should. Uh, move on to our next movie any other final thoughts on ai before we wrap things up it still stinks (laughs) (laughs) 
worth uh, revisiting. That's what I'll say. Yeah, maybe worth revisiting. I'm, I, that volleyball comment at the end was interesting, and it reminds me of Lars and the Real Girl too. Like, sorry, I I just think that it's more it's it's not so much that I'm in love with the volleyball or or um, Bianca and Lars and the Real Girl. It's more I'm interested in the human interaction with them and and the necess the necessity of those beings or friends or whatever these these fantasy creatures that the people made up and I, I don't know where i'm going with this exactly but that's interesting like it's not the it's not the robots themselves it's more about what it, or what it should be about is the humans need for them and their emotional response and i guess you're the that, thing that they forgot to put in the movie the thing right, they totally forgot to put in the movie. In ai unfortunately yeah Okay, sorry. The volleyball thing was is an interesting analogy, I think. But anyway, uh, I, I liked it. Like I said, I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I don't need to now. I've seen it three or four times. I've seen all I need to see of it. But uh, if you've only seen it once, it's definitely, like Sean said, worth revisiting. If you've never seen it, certainly. I know people out there that love it. I know. I wish Marina could have been here because she's... She said in an email to me that she loves it, capital L-O-V-E-S. So I, it was <laughs> She's going to hate me after this podcast. <laughs> it would be interesting to know why she loves it so much. I wonder, I, it's very glossy. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of neat things to look at. And if you're not delving into it too much like we are and just looking at it from a sort of um, surface perspective, it is really cool. I mean, all those different robots in the flesh fair are really neat to look at. All the city is awesome. It's very Blade Runner ish, but m even more glossy and, and clean. Um, and the performances are interesting, even if they're not good, they're certainly interesting to take a hold of. So yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth a look if you've never seen it. And if you've never seen it, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm sure there's those are some of the reasons why Marina really loves it. Okay. Jay, final thoughts. I didn't get to watch it again, so I'll probably rewatch it. And uh, are you waiting for the Blu-ray? You know what? I I am not holding my breath on that one. See, this is exactly why it it isn't remembered because. This type of movie should be the kind of movie that's already out on Blu-ray, but it, you, it, if if you've I, only seen it on DVD, you haven't seen it. Exactly. There is a there is a Blu-ray image on the IMDb. I don't know if it's. I think there's Blu-ray images for every movie that's out there now. If you go to any Blu-ray message board, people like their their um, avatars uh, are like uh, their favorite movies and Blu-ray covers and. Or or Amazon, they'll have placeholders for all of the oh, titles. I see. And never mind, this was a soundtrack picture anyway. But okay. It says AI confirmed for uh, for Europe on Blu-ray soon. There you go. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, move on then to our second movie for this episode, which is uh, kind of a different movie: John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I think uh, we were kind of hoping to have this recorded before Halloween. Which seemed like a reasonable Missed goal, it just by a bit. <laughs> uh, back back when we first announced it, but um, nonetheless, here we are. And uh, Jay, I know this is one of your favorite 
movies. You've got quite a history with it. Why don't you uh, kick off the discussion? Sorted history. <laughs> um, well, I I had seen this film when it uh, came out on VHS when I was a kid, and Prince of Darkness, and and They Live, and Big Trouble in Little China. These are the the first films I can remember. Um, starting to to see that you know all of these movies that I love are coming from the same person, so it was John Carpenter is is still one of my favorite directors of all time, and and he definitely was then because he was the first director for me to actually grab onto and start seeking out other films of his, um, and it's one of the only uh, few films that that actually scared me as a kid um and uh it it works for me on is andrew still here yeah i'm here okay (laughs) um i just want to make sure you're listening to this (laughs) um yeah it it uh the the science and religion element and and the the physics and everything and and the the music and the i don't know just everything about it works for me even though uh, it's really just a kind of another night of the living dead or uh assault on precinct 13 or you know siege movie yeah well i mean uh i guess a couple things off the bat number one i think it's probably one of john carpenter's more under appreciated movies i mean it's certainly you know even even they live you hear people talk about way more than you hear people talk about prince of darkness but I mean, certainly Halloween, the thing, like these movies are, you know, way, way more appreciated than this. And and I don't know, like, there, I guess it wasn't that well received critically when it first came out. I'm not None too of his sure. films are. But, um, but I think the religious thing is something that is kind of unique to it. I mean, obviously there's other horror movies with that element in there. But, um, Kurt, what uh, were your sort of initial impressions of Prince of Darkness? I saw it on VHS back in the day, and I had completely forgotten the movie. Um, for some reason, the title I still remembered. All I could remember of the movie was this um, video element. There's a there's a shot in the movie where you you basically see like the beamed back information from the future of what the Antichrist looks like, and it's shot on video. Um, and that image, I didn't remember anything else going into this movie except for that image, which is scary and alien looking because no one for film shot on video, even though everyone was watching films on video, VHS, no one ever shot on video. Not that I knew that as a kid, or, uh, but that, that image stuck with me. But then I borrowed the DVD and watched the DVD and... I like parts of the movie, but I, I found the beginning to be a bit of a slog and, and so forth. And But it's a textbook case of why you probably should be watching a movie in the theater because one of the advantages, at least for me personally, is while we were organizing the logistics to get together for this podcast, um, a Toronto Cinema got a print just before Halloween, a 35-millimeter print of the movie, and I'd seen the movie like two weeks before on DVD in my in my own home on my home theater setup, and I was okay with it. I, I found the first half to be a total slog. 
the same movie in the cinema projected and it was riveting. It, it was just one of these things of people can make all the arguments they want about watching a movie, you know, on, on videotape or, or, or DVD versus seeing it in the movie theater. This was probably the, one of the biggest examples I could ever have of, I watched almost an entirely different, it just, it was just more in the cinema. It was more, in your face, it was more funny. It was it was more visceral. Everything was more when I saw it projected uh, or with an audience too. Because when I'm watching it by myself, I didn't find anything in the movie funny. Least of all the the, the guy from Big Trouble Little China's jokes, which is still not funny with an audience. But there are other things that the audience was laughing at, and then I realized, my goodness, that is actually pretty funny. Like there's a joke with the radiologist with glasses. Everyone says that almost at least once. How I miss that watching it by myself, but with an audience, everyone laughs every time it's said again. So anyways, I guess my point was um, this more than any movie I can think of recently, uh, the how I saw it uh, had a large effect. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Andrew? Um, well, like Jay, I am a Carpenter fan. I don't, I'm not not to the quite the same level as Jay is, but, uh, you know, some of his stuff is hit or miss. But I am a big John Carpenter fan. This movie, it works in fits and starts. Uh, like Kurt, at the, the beginning for me um, at home on DVD, it was is a bit of a slog. I think that's exactly right. It's just, okay, it's this guy and this guy. And I think the biggest problem is, for me, is I don't care about any of these characters. I don't care about any of them they're just there for me um but then you watched it on youtube and (laughs) (laughs) it was in high def yeah i did i well i watched it on dvd maybe like a year or two ago um and then i went up for the movie club for this podcast i went upstairs to grab my dvd and it wasn't there so i went oh shit okay well, let's just see. <laughs> it was not on streaming on Netflix, and so there it was on YouTube. It's in 10 parts if, if you want to go check it out, and it's not bad. I mean, I have a decent-sized monitor, so I did the full screen, and it is in their high quality. So at least, you know, it wasn't like watching it on my iPod or anything. But, uh, um, yeah, it's it just takes a long time for things to get going. But once it does, all of the imagery and the music... And like Kurt's mention of that fucking awesome video shooting of the of the radio sequence or the radio frequency or whatever, um, all that stuff put together is quite creepy and fun to look at. I'm sure Fangoria had a lot of good things to say about this movie at the time, um, but all of that does not make for me a, a really great experience. Like I've seen it twice now and. I, I would be really tough for me to sit through it again just because it's just not nothing for me was really interesting about it other than the visuals and a little bit of the there's some stuff about um, time travel and 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 that is a little bit interesting and gets my mind thinking but I'd rather watch uh, obsessed and obscured what's the nice try so I, I liked it. It's just that turned into an insult. <laughs> no, 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's the. I think that's the thing that uh, separates this film from being just another sort of zombie slasher type, you know, each person being knocked off sort of thing is there are some cool um, science elements, even though they're, they're pretty basic. I mean, talking about the cat in the box and observing the cat on, you know, I, I'm, I don't yeah, know a lot about physics, up. but these are things that are pretty basic ideas that, you know, <laughs> when you see two physics students walking out of a school and she has to explain that to the other one. And he's like, why did I get into this? <laughs> and, and they're grad students. Yeah. <laughs> Not high school. Yeah. And she's like doing all these crazy equations. But meanwhile, the lecture he was giving was like the most basic, like, yeah. But I mean, the, as ideas, as people, you know, watching it as layman's, even though the people he's talking to are supposed to know what they're doing, it's cool stuff. And it's, it, I wouldn't want it to get, for this film, I wouldn't want it to get too much more complicated than it does. Um, but I, I mean, Victor Wong's performance as uh, Professor Barak is pretty awesome. And, and he could be talking about the, the, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated for him because the way he delivers those lines and, and like the things of ghosts turning into, you know, whatever spirits or whatever. Um, he just has this, this delivery that makes everything seem very important and, and um, coming off of uh, like comparing that to his performance as Egg Chen in, in Big Trouble in Little China, it's like day and night. He, he still looks unusual and goofy, but he, he is very serious in this film and, and you know, he's, he's not amazing in it, but I, I, I liked him. Donald Pleasance though um, gives probably at the same time, one of the best and one of the worst performances ever in, in this, the history of cinema in this movie <laughs> as especially when my favorite moment is when he sees uh, the girl who's now, you know, possessed <laughs> standing in front of the mirror and pulling the, the, the father of Satan through this portal and he's sitting there like, oh, and he looks beside him and sees the ax and he's like, I could, I, I could. <laughs> and then he like cuts her arm off. That's but Donald Pleasance in yeah, a nutshell right yes. there. I, but I love it. I mean, I, I love his performance and, and, um, but yeah, I mean, I think each character, sure. The characters don't have much depth to them, but they have enough depth for, um, to, to be able to, to tell them apart. And that's good enough for me. <laughs> some have glasses, some don't. The radiologist <laughs> has glasses. <laughs> but like just even stuff like the guy who gets his neck broken and then you see him walking down the hall and he's just got his head tilted <laughs> like his neck is broken. I like that. Um, but I mean, it fits in with John Carpenter out of uh, so many directors. His work is so... Um, if, if you love one film, you'll start seeing things in, in his other films that it's like, whether it be the same actors or the same framing or the same music or, or whatever, the same font in the opening credits. Um, he, he's definitely a tour and he's got like all of these elements that you're likely to enjoy other films. And especially in the mid eighties when he was doing his universal films and, like they live big trauma in little China and Prince of darkness 
are all very similar movies because of shared cast members, shared themes, shared ideas. The soundtracks are all extremely similar. And I, that's what I like about them because they just, they all came out in such a small period of time. And when I had seen them, I was very impressionable. And these were films that I was, my parents were renting and I was enjoying. And I was seeing, like I said, elements of these seemingly separate movies that were the same and realizing that this is all coming from one mind kind of on the soundtrack note though um i think prince of darkness more than any other john carpenter film is pulled along by its soundtrack that just was really striking like um you're right. It, it sounds a lot like, but They Live's soundtrack is way too repetitive and way too clunky. Just the way the editing, the, what, 12-minute opening credit sequence in Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. but it's all underscored with the soundtrack. And he actually gets massive amounts of character interla- interation or uh, interrelations and, and exposition and everything in that credit sequence Mm -hmm. which is mostly silent Mm -hmm. it it occasionally breaks for dialogue Uh, that's pretty impressive that anyone would actually drag the credits for that long and 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 make use of it and but the, the good thing is that it does get some exposition across and you do you are introduced to the characters but it is setting such a a heavy tone possibly a tone that is heavier than the film itself like it probably i don't think it necessarily carries that tone throughout the entire movie i can see where people might watch it and think wow this is this is heavy like this is dark and then eventually it just becomes like a a zombie kind of thing but um it does dip into those dark areas every every now and again i think and there's just certain moments like when i remember when brian uh after um uh, the thing, the tube shoots, uh, water shoots from the ceiling into the, the gynecologist with glasses, uh, into her mouth. <laughs> um, uh, professor Barack comes up and, and, you know, uh, goes up to Brian and, and he, he says, you know, that this thing is active, it's conscious. And just the, the performance there, like from, from the guy from Simon and Simon, uh, he's not the greatest actor in the world, but he's got this subtlety in his face. Like, you know, he's a scientist and you're telling him that this tube down there contains something that is growing. And, you know, the idea that it's locked, thank goodness it's locked. It can only be opened from the inside and, and it's constructing something out of cells and it's controlling things. And like, it's that mix of, of science and fantasy where the tube looks like something out of a, a, weird it, it it's just is such a weird image in a movie that it seems to be basing itself in science and then you see that tube and it's so odd like just that design is so abstract for for whoever thought of that like i want a spinning green liquid in a tube it's just an unusual choice but i i like it i think it works it's, we you said science and 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 fantasy i would say that's what ai is uh whereas Prince of Darkness is more science and religion and the fact that at some point the sort of questing things that you do with religion when you start to get down to the subatomic particle scale you start to get down to the quantum scale now all of a sudden science starts to look like that blind faith mm-hmm. of religion and I actually 
can't think of too many movies that really hit on that. And, and while, yeah, okay, there, there's basic genre elements in the movie, I think the movie's its best when, I mean, they say it early on that the, that the Victor Wong's um, quantum physicist is, is more like um, a philosopher or a preacher than a, than a, than a scientist. And yeah, I, I find that to be, cause I mean, everything does get non-intuitive, just like religion gets incredibly non-intuitive when you start looking at it on that scale. And so why not? And then when they bring a time travel element in there, it doesn't just feel grafted on. It actually brings into the whole determinism, you know, now are we, you know, are we, you know, puppeted, puppeted by God or are we locked in because these guys sent this message back, you know, however they, 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 they tacky on mm-hmm. blah, 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 uh, back into the thing. And are we now determined? I, yeah. Okay. The movie gets goofy, particularly anytime Alice Cooper is on screen where the movie's at <laughs> its worst, but yeah, the and, fact that it was just, going just after these clear, things was you, good. You're not joking. He actually is in the oh, movie for anybody who doesn't know. My good lord! <laughs> and, and they they that bicycle scene in the movie should have so been left as a cutting well, room floor. What's even worse about that is apparently that's actually a gag he used to do on tour at the time. <laughs> that that is a prop from his show. Yeah. Well, so that's even, and the person he kills is listening to the song that he did for the soundtrack. Well, so. that scene is so self-indulgent that it should just have been. What I don't gone. get about that scene is he he shoves this bike into the guy, and the guy leans over, and then this light comes up on his face, like this impractical, you know, no apparent source of light shines on the guy's face. But but I mean, for a second, just yeah, it is religion and and uh, science, but what I meant was that image of that tube is so fantastic. Like the, the yeah, it looks spinning, like a spell or whatever. Yeah. It's, it, there's like that whole, uh, just when they go open the door and go down like this sort of Gothic, it turns into a Gothic horror film for a little bit, but, um, I have but, one question for you and all of your Prince of Darkness expertise. Who the hell lit all those candles? Yeah, I know. <laughs> there. <laughs> That scene is like so, that's where the movie, yeah, you're right. It sets Mm -hmm. this really dark tone and then they walk down into this catacombs and there's like 10,000 candles burning Mm -hmm. for no reason. Yeah. It's kind of like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There should be like a a knight down there that has lived there for all of eternity lighting candles. (laughs) Lighting candles. But the one, like just little things like the... um, the the stuff with the eclipse and and the when uh brian uh or brian jameson parker is watching uh a news report about a uh star that goes supernova they discover a a star and i i could never even now i still don't know the entire relevance of that if it has something to do with the tachyon beams or or like did, did you guys or light traveling or I think it was maybe just to illustrate the point because then they talk about later about how somebody would have had to plan ahead of time to send the light so that it would get to earth at a certain time or something and there's that cheesy moment that I never thought worked where he's he's explaining tachyons and he's doing his little card trick that he does to impress ladies and then suddenly his card disappears I don't know if you remember that moment and everyone looks at him like oh. <laughs> 
Well, I think when John Carpenter was making this movie, I, you know, I, I don't think he had a science consultant on set or anything. Yeah. He was probably reading or just into or slightly obsessed with it. And mm-hmm. whether, no matter how far he was in this Antichrist movie, it just sort of took over the movie and, and ended up... But I like that mix. I mean, it never gets above its sort of campy... Um, not campy, but just straight genre digression Mm -hmm. but then it does actually shoot for the moon with which is the opposite of ai and maybe that's why i'm more forgiving with prince of darkness because prince of darkness is built from the ground up as kind of a goofy movie but then it somehow manages to interweave all of this these interesting ideas that you you could latch on and they're developed in in some meaningful way even if it's just exposition i mean it put it's putting out ideas on the table ai on the other hand is taking everything from a very serious realistic touchable point of view and then it never quite comes together i guess i'm more forgiving with the uh with with the um with the genre starting up and then you know like like all you said zombie movies i mean like night of the living dead manages to work in racism and and dawn of the dead gets gets some interesting comments on consumerism and lots of genre movies are used to tackle ideas in a in a in a in a, in a way and prince of darkness actually has sexism. its own <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of sexism that's particularly true. the again, radiologist the, with glasses well all the jokes married. the jokes that uh the the you could the pass for asian from, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Well, the Jewish joke he tells it, which is the strangest place thing. He's in a closet or or, or the, the the confessional booth or whatever he's in. He's watching the Antichrist impregnate a woman and mm-hmm. the slow, well, actually quite quick transformation. And he tells them a Jewish rich doctor joke in the middle. It's just so bizarre. Actually, that reminds me. I wanted to touch on the thing that I noticed when we watched it in the theater was the, the hinting at Walter being gay. Um, because at the beginning when they get the assignment to go do this thing at the church, uh, and, uh, Brian comes and tells him and he's like, you know, pissed off cause he had this date with a, a doctor or, or whatever, uh, this, this person. And, and he, Brian makes a joke like, Oh, is he, rich or something or is he like as though it's a man and um later on there's another joke that someone makes at, at walter's expense about him being gay and then he's stuck in the closet at, at that scene oh so <laughs> well it, it goes much further it goes much further than that if you look at the the weird goo possession um liquids it's always same sex or interracial when they when you know how they they constantly impregnate so and one at one point it's like a threesome with the two uh uh women on the black guy mm-hmm. uh, right. and uh i, I mean like wow. if you take a movie like near dark which is has a huge sort of aids allegory to it you know like the the the, the vampire gang or like these sort of drug user vagrant and 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 infected and then they bring the nice pretty boy in, in into the into the mix and he's corrupted like you know like the whole just say no drug paranoia i think there's actually whether it's conscious or not i don't know but if you if you start obsessing on stuff like that um 
it's there. It, mm-hmm. it, it is there, whether it's intentional <laughs> or not. And, and it's, I find that whole infection segment of the movie to be interesting from, <laughs> from that point of view. And once Walter does get out of the closet... The first thing he does is knee a woman in the gut. In the <laughs> bash her I, I with almost, bricks. I, I, never mind. I, I said two words that were both equally inappropriate to create one even more inappropriate word. But <laughs> in the gut and groin area, and throws her through a window. So I, I think he's uh, made his transition by the end of the film. Yeah. Well, I. Just the the one thing, like you guys are talking about the whole infection thing. One thing that I love about this movie is how they spread the infection. Like, it's just such a simple thing, but it's, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I guess there's other movies that have done it before. I can't think of any offhand, but um, just like the, the jet of water going from mouth to mouth or something. Like, that's a pretty kind of abstract idea as well. And... uh uh, getting back to that whole discussion, I mean, I think this is a movie that does a lot. And, and you, you know, we always talk about horror movies that leave everything up to your imagination. And there's some horrific images and some creepy images in this movie. But I think the biggest, the the most frightening thing about it is that it leaves a lot up to your imagination. Like, you never really see the Antichrist. You just kind of see that dark shadow in the grainy video footage and... Um, but you see the hand, which is an interesting choice that they decided. What does the father of Satan's hand look like? It's red with long black fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically Tim Curry from legend. <laughs> That's a good point. But, um, you know, like just, there's just so many like sort of abstract images and things that it's like, it could be worse than it really is. And, and I think, you know, definitely the soundtrack plays a part in that. Like, it, if if it didn't have something to really kind of hammer home how dark the movie is trying to be, that you, you might it might be more laughable, I guess. Well, I mean, you have to mention how unconventional the soundtrack is, too. I mean, it's, it's essentially just rhythmic, like, synth bass and, like, odd percussion and and it's a very unconventional soundtrack i mean even in regards to john carpenter's body of of soundtracks it's and i think it's really uh effective it's the creepiest some of the creepiest music i've it's it's basically satan's heartbeat is what basically (laughs) satan's heartbeat is a synth bass But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Let me ask you guys, like, do you find this movie scary? Because I know, Jay, you had a bit of like, you know, when you were younger and stuff and your cousin in particular had yeah, had an issue with watching this movie. And- making him watch it. My parents made him watch it. <laughs> um, but no, I don't find it scary at all anymore. But even as a kid, eventually I got over it. And um, But I mean, there are still like the the video footage it, that is scary too. But the soundtrack to that is I think effective too, with that distorted voice, like you're receiving this message from the year one nine and then it'll cut. And then later on you'll hear one nine, nine, nine. I, it just is very authentic that segment. Like that's something that could totally have sounded like, you know, the voice, could have been like he could have gotten Jamie Lee Curtis to do it or something. Or it could have been like, 
you are receiving this message from the year 1999. <laughs> like just the way he does it is so simple and understated. Well, and it's a it's a it's the vintage horror technique of don't don't show too much. Yeah. Keep it close to the vest. Like I mean it's really that whole video element is at the most like under 1% of the running time. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that it's used sparingly even though it's implied or at least said through exposition that every time anyone falls asleep in that church, they have that dream. Um, and and that, that's kind of scary, too, is that now your dreams aren't even yours They're anymore. They're all sharing the yeah. same. Yeah. Like the idea of that, you just put a few people in the room, give them a few reaction shots. Like you said, the Simon uh, and Simon guy can do an OK reaction shot. And, uh, <laughs> you can do a very good reaction <laughs> shot. And that, that's, that's enough for that yeah. type of movie. That's enough. Uh, throw some worms on a window <laughs> and cut to Simon. <laughs> but the, the, the one thing that cracked me up to no end on this, watching it uh, just twice there, is the guy with the cockroaches, uh, like the, the cockroaches. Thing. Hello. <laughs> just before that, when he's like, this is all caca. Yeah. I tell you, they don't say it once. He comes back. I tell you, it's caca. <laughs> yeah, he has that little moment where they all walk away and he's like, caca. <laughs> <laughs> to say it again. Um, the thing that scared me was, well, I, I mean, the religious element when I was a kid, I used to find that stuff scary. But um, the idea, and, and this would get to me in certain films, the idea of they're locked in this church and every once in a while you'll cut to an exterior of it and you'll see a car drive by. And it's like this small group of grad students, um, are essentially fighting for the universe, um, inside of the, this church and nobody knows that it's happening. It's like all put on them to resolve this, this issue and they can't get out and everything like right outside is just, normal and and it's like it's all contained in this little building and it's all up to them to to resolve the issue i always thought that that was scary well i mean on the topic of the the religious stuff i i don't know i feel like we've talked about this before maybe not on the movie club podcast but uh i know for me like the exorcist is definitely one of the scarier movies i've seen and um even though i'm not a religious person there is that element of like maybe it's real and like in the back of your head like playing some of that stuff up and i mean i guess somebody for who really is religious it would be even more effective but just because it's so ingrained in our culture i feel like if you can play on that in a certain way and be a little bit abstract about it like this movie is it really works uh, yeah me, I mean, it doesn't even element. have to be real it can even if it's not real it's still some fucked up person who's think who thinks that they're possessed which is just as scary um because you don't know what they're capable of if they think that they've got a demon like all the homeless people out front or whatever the i thought you were saying in general in general (laughs) like all homeless people (laughs) (laughs) and alice cooper um but yeah i'm i i think there are a lot of elements to this film that kind of elevate it beyond just being a sort of cheesy siege zombie movie um and the religious stuff is is a part of that and the the location that church is creepy as fuck and it always has that one hour photos develop yeah. time but that, that actually you know in all seriousness that does get behind be, beside the, like the divine and the mundane mm-hmm. that are side by side and in yeah. different 
But one thing that when we left the screening, Roman, who had came with us, had mentioned that did seem kind of odd. The uh, idea of um, this this whole thing and, and Professor Barak decides to bring his grad students to, to resolve this issue. But, I mean, t- to me, I thought that, you know, he would have been going into it assuming that it's nothing and he kind of would bring these people along just to do a, a you know, random sort of, like they he says it'll help their class average. Um, so I, I kind of got the impression that from the beginning, he doesn't really believe what's going on, but then it's weird because it's like, okay, well, if he thinks it's all garbage, then why is he going through the trouble to bring all of this equipment and these students out to, to study this? What does he think it is if it's not the devil? <laughs> well, I guess like, I'm kind of curious, like, is it ever made clear what exactly they are students of? Like, are they all different no, no, disciplines? The, yeah, or they... it, it, there's a scene with them all in the hallway where all the... Um, yeah, there's like different the, the biochemists are like, whoa, we're this. And their biochemist boss is the military leader from They Live. And, yeah. uh, I mean, there's a, they're not all grad students, even. Like, the couple of the right. people are, are... So, yeah, they, they bring in chemists. They bring in the linguists. They bring in the, the... But I guess the movie's framed originally from the physicist's point of view. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you get this... It is quite impressive how many characters they do juggle over like 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a whole mix. A lot of them are just cannon fodder too. Mm-hmm. Which is always good. <laughs> Andrew, are you uh, what, feeling huh? better about the movie? or? <laughs> no, I, I'm actually, I'm just sort of enjoying listening to you guys talk about it because most of the stuff that you're discussing, I, I wasn't thinking too much about. I was... I was more interested in the in just little bits. Like I, I wrote down a bunch of little things that I really liked about the movie, um, and then a few things that I just didn't like about it. But they're all little quick scenes or quick bits of visuals that I like. All the religion and science stuff to me was touched on so. It, I mean, it was just glossed over barely. Uh, like it just kissed the surface. So. None of that really got into my head too much. I was just looking for the next something cool that's going to happen because that's what John Carpenter does, and there's a lot of that, and and that's what I liked about it. Like the last 30 minutes of the movie is just awesome with little bits of imagery that just creep me out a little bit. Even now there's a scene where, um, I, I don't know, I guess she's the main the main villain or whatever she's lying on that bed and she's all scarred and zombie and then she gets up and she picks up her cosmetic mirror and just her eyes are in that mirror and that's imagery that's been used in a million movies like in a rearview mirror or whatever well no but carpenter constantly emulates argento and that's a he he does it with the scissors there's a death scene with scissors earlier where it's like even though halloween is a pure sort of Americanization of Giallo. He that scene in Prince of Darkness is probably the most Giallo moment in his entire over or whatever. Right, and it and it and I think the other the other great image uh, that I think should just be the poster of the movie is uh, when the when she's reaching through the mirror or the water mirror or whatever, and then you see just her fingers coming through on the other side. It's all black on the right side of your screen. And just barely on the left are these two fingers coming through 
this glistening water. I just uh, that shot just was like awesome. Which just and, screams low budget, like in, not in a bad way, in a good way that, you know, the movie is set in one location and they're using tricks like that. Like, what? how are we going to have them impregnating each other? We're just going to shoot water out of their mouths. What does the other side look like? It just looks like a swimming pool with the lights out, yeah. you know? There's your water equals rebirth <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, really. And I, when you mentioned the score before, Kurt, I think Kurt nailed it exactly. It really pulls the movie along because even I, I love the score and even when the movie isn't working and maybe it's a little bit some of this boring exposition or dialogue is going on that music is really giving you a mood I mean you take that music out and this movie is ass so that I, I really appreciated that too but I mean there's so much crap like when he's stuck in the closet that whole sequence to me is so boring and the dialogue that comes out of his mouth just makes me roll my eyes like they knock on the he's in a closet and they knock on the door on the wall and they're like what's his name walter walter where are you and he goes if i told you you'd never believe me and i'm thinking what do you mean you're in a closet dude dialogue like that was but he's but in a he, closet outside of where the uh the father of satan is being reborn like nobody would believe that <laughs> I, right right <laughs> no i think I, that I, just I, comes I, back to him his gay metaphor <laughs> they ask it where he is and he says you'll never believe me <laughs> I, i'm in I'm a closet gay. and i can't come out um <laughs> yeah, i don't know i just don't have a whole lot of interesting things to say about the movie other than I liked it in fits and starts. Like I said, there's bits that I that I appreciate well, on the surface. I'd be curious if you'd have a different reaction if you saw it with an audience. And the audience we saw it well it wasn't even that plentiful. It was probably like forty people tops in a, in the in the right. whole screening. But um, well, I've made that case for for years that almost any movie you see is going to be that half a star better just by seeing it in the theater. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that seeing this on a nice big screen with with a crowd that's really into it, maybe at a late night showing, um, would would make it a lot more fun. But there's just so much that's not fun that it's just kind of like, yeah, that was, a, that was an alright movie. It had its moments, but uh, that's all I need. See, this is one movie where I think that one of the the fun elements of it, where it normally wouldn't be fun, is the exposition because it's just all so doom and gloom and like it, it's so um, the universe is, is about to end or about to change significantly and coming out of the mouths of Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong for the most part. Uh, I think those are two great guys to be spreading most of your exposition and they handle it just with, you know, they, it's all just kind of, uh, glazed with this just a light layer of religion and, and science uh, to the point where it, it's, it sounds smart, maybe a little bit where it's, there's, it's all kind of surface stuff, but it's just enough of, there's a, enough of a, a tech talk or like a, a techno babble there that it just sounds interesting and it sounds more important and, and massive than it is. I, I would think, but well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's one thing I like about this movie is that for something that is fairly low budget, 
and, and for you know for what it is it 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 aims for something that's like pretty high like i mean we're talking about you know like satan coming in and like basically destroying the world or something and and that's like a pretty lofty goal to set and and yet they managed to pull it off and and i think you know again to come back to the soundtrack that helps a lot i mean it, well i mean look how it manifests itself through water shooting out of people's mouths and a tube of green liquid the only reason that that works for those who it works for is because of that exposition coming out of the mouths of Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance and the music and just people's reactions to things. Like when someone tells someone that that thing down there is, is conscious, like there's even that moment where the long haired blonde guy who the caca guy uh, <laughs> comes into a room and the amazing grace black guy and <laughs> oh no, no, it's not the caca guy. He's, he's in the room with the amazing grace guy and then someone else walks in and, and he says, there's something downstairs. And then the caca guy is like, you're not actually buying this shit. But everyone's reaction to like, we've just been told that this thing is supposedly the son of Satan in a, a green tube. Um, it's a ridiculous idea and a ridiculous image. But for me, it's totally sold by the ridiculously lofty and like broad and like melodramatic exposition coming out of donald pleasance and uh victor wong but the real realism in the movie though is that when they all are coming to the church when you know at about the 20 minute mark or whatever when everyone's decided to come to the church um all the grad students pull up in a single u-haul and donald pleasance the catholic priest pulls up in a limo yeah (laughs) or at the end when they're taking him away and in the the bed the stretcher is that what they call it cot no like the yeah, hospital the bed yeah the gurney uh and he, they're wheeling him out and he they stop him to say a couple lines and he says i stopped it and like, he totally takes credit for <laughs> throwing an axe at the mirror after the the girl jumped through and sacrificed did her, her did her Christian, yeah, sort of heavy-handed Christian and, sacrifice. <laughs> and Vic, Victor Wong's, you know, response after that is awesome. He's just like, sometimes, you know, some of us have to die to save the rest of us. So be it. The, <laughs> the, the, the good of the many outweighs yeah. the good of the one. But I mean, the last scene is, I think, pretty awesome That's, too. Like that, that jump scare. I think anyone who watches it for the first time will be uh hit with that jump scare that's yeah and like the the pizza face lady is pretty freaky imagery pizza too. The no, <laughs> laughing laughing amazing grace guy when he just does his like intense sweaty giggle yeah. <laughs> it is there's weird shit like that but it's so weird that it's creepy it's on it's like why is why is amazing grace guy singing amazing grace and everyone else does what they do like what is the the liquid do to the person I like that he has this like regret that because he, he thinks he is the one that's going to bring him back, but he isn't. It's the girl, and and uh, so that there's that interesting element to it. But hey, know, Jay, that last that last scene in um, in his apartment, mm-hmm. AJ Simon's apartment, as he's getting up and walking sort of towards the camera, towards the mirror in the background, the there's poster, an awesome poster. Yeah, what is that? It looks I, like Freddy Krueger, but I. 
I know. I it. I thought it was. I had thought it was a face as well, but I think it's a galaxy. Oh, that would make sense. Okay. Yeah. I was curious. Well, it does look like a face, though. But that yeah. jump scare you mentioned is to me. It's it's. I mean, it's effective in Carrie as well, but it, it's identical to Brian De Palma's Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has it trumps Carrie in that he goes to the mirror, and you know he just saw his girlfriend disappear into the mirror mm-hmm. and and oh you know like this is all real and he's supposedly the scientist and and now you know every mirror that he looks at he's gonna have that well what sean said earlier like whether you believe it or not he's gonna have that reaction and the fact that carpenter lets him put his finger towards the mirror towards the mirror and then it cuts yeah. before he makes contact with the mirror what an ending that is a perfect ending to that movie well i mean that whole idea too that i i don't remember the the dialogue exactly but i think there is either from donald pleasance or victor wong some sort of idea that we've we've stopped it for now but it will always be on the other side waiting to get out and that idea that they know that on the other side of the mirror is well i have a question for for how the movie because i i actually still don't fully understand with the video shot which is broadcast from the future um is it is the you know the antichrist coming out of the church in in the earlier versions of the shot is it a different thing or is it just not complete like it does no, the actual person change so yeah. it, it isn't like a twilight zone episode where we actually bridged the continuity like a regular time travel movie we had to bridge right in and everything that we did actually enabled it it's actually changed yeah okay i i never quite understood that yeah it it would make more sense if it was her the entire time but it's not and what it is it the shape is very it's got like a weird cloak, like a yeah, uh, and a bald head, and doesn't really seem like it would be what they were trying to pull out of the mirror. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't that's know. That's just an error <laughs> in the movie, probably. <laughs> like, um, is it? I mean, I'm not joking. I mean, it was no, just I, one I of think the it's just the movie. I think it's just supposed to be that. Uh, I think it's supposed to be kind of left open and like just now it's her you know, what does it mean? Because the message is still the same Mm -hmm. and it, you know, is she the embodiment of maybe her going onto the other side? Now the devil comes back in her form or something, or, um, I don't know. Choose the destructor. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the idea of control it, controlling things like the bugs and the, homeless people <laughs> what are you saying Jay? lower exactly. life forms <laughs> that that's an interesting comment what can it control bugs and homeless people <laughs> and worms yep <laughs> yeah so um i'm feeling like we're coming to the end of our discussion about prince of darkness yep Oh, it's also worth mentioning that it's a part of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which started with The Thing, Prince of Darkness was the second installment, and In the Mouth of Madness was the last. So what's the connection between those three? The Apocalypse. Really? The Thing has an Apocalypse? (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it ends with two people not knowing if one or the other is an alien, um... 
and assuming that either one would go on to, as that computer simulation shows, take over the population or freeze over again and be found again in the future. And In the Mouth of Madness ends with the with Sam Neill's character in the theater laughing as everyone outside turns into um, monsters. So, hmm. Interesting. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, for me, it's, uh, I, I'm, I was introduced to the movie through you, and I think part of that, I mean, I feel like I have a bit of a history with the movie, and I think there's, there's a nostalgia to it, like just, you know, thinking back on it and i think if you watch it now it looks a little dated feels a little dated but i still think there's some pretty creepy imagery in it and uh as sort of a fun b movie that is actually scary at points i think it works yeah the only problem watching this movie for the first time with someone now is having to put up with them laughing at mustaches exactly (laughs) get the fuck over it (laughs) just wait a few more years and it'll it'll work again yeah But, uh, all right. Well, um, I guess looking ahead to the next episode of the movie club podcast, assuming that it actually will happen, uh, coming in 2014, (laughs) it'll be episode number 16. And, um, the poll winner was the warriors. So that's the first choice, and I believe through conversation just now, we've decided that the uh, movie we're going to pair with it is Scorsese's After Hours, so that should be cool. It's Scorsese's birthday today, so... Wow. How fortuitous is that? That's pretty uh, creepy. Is that the right word? I don't know. Um, So, yeah, so I guess that about wraps it up. Uh, Once again, we want to invite you to... Join in the conversation. Um, head over to movieclubpodcast.com and uh, give us your comments on AI and Prince of Darkness and also vote for the poll that I guess we'll have up for the following episode of the Movie Club Podcast. And, uh, of course, you can also visit all of our sites, filmjunk.com, row3.com, documentaryblog.com, twitchfilm.net anything else alright well uh, I guess that's it then thanks everyone for listening and uh, we will see you next time on the movie club podcast Kaka. Kaka.